You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Close the door to the ark. All right, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. We're thankful that you did not leave us uh, Lord, to our own sort of rhythms and instincts, but that you have built within the very fabric of the week one day where we can come together to worship, um, to feast on your word, to be reminded about who we are in Christ. And so that can set us on the trajectory in the rest of this week. And so we're grateful for our time together today. And Lord, we ask that in your mercy, you would help the teacher today as we sort of continue to lean into the book of Kings and for those who are here to listen, that you would open our hearts and minds to learn from from what seems like such a foreign world, but yet a world that's really living right in our backyard. So give us grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I haven't taken any, any time for Q&A, but I don't really know. I mean, I don't know what you want to ask. Um, <laughs> anything you want to ask about from the previous weeks? I've just been firing stuff at you. Um, I, I, we'll see if there's some time at the end, and maybe we'll, we'll if, if something comes to your mind. Um, so we're in week three, and that was a horrible way to lead into asking for questions. I basically put the kibosh on that, but it, anyway, I'm sorry. Um, uh, we we are still in First uh, Kings. I am going to try to get us a little bit um, into Second Kings at one point today. Um, so I've decided to kind of dive in a little bit in various places. And I want to end again, or begin, where we ended last week with uh, the ending of Solomon's life, or where Solomon's reign comes to an end, because this is a significant moment in time. Um, if you look, for example, at, and I don't know if you have Bibles, but 1 Kings 8, this is the, this is the, the dedication of the temple And if you remember, I made a, a, a soft claim last week that the beginning part of Solomon's narrative about him growing in wisdom, about him sort of cleaning house politically, uh, bringing Israel into an era of peace, of, of peace that was of some world renown, was laying the groundwork for Solomon to build the temple. So this is, this, there's a strategic move that's going on where the temple and the temple being built becomes central to the story that's going on here in the book of Kings because the temple represents something really significant in Israel's life. What, what, what's the temple do? Um, the temple, and I'm stealing here from a Jewish scholar named John Levinson, uh, the temple in many ways was the Garden of Eden um, in the midst of the people of God who are, who are already living outside of the garden. What, what do I mean by that? Uh, another way of saying this is the temple becomes a kind of intimation of immortality. Um, you'll, you'll read uh, various scholars who will say things like, um, you know, there's no real robust doctrine um, of the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. It's actually a very, a very common understanding. And we could discuss this because it's actually kind of complicated on one level um, because you don't, you don't hear a lot of that. For example, when David's on his deathbed, he's not saying, and now as I go, I will, you know, I'm departing to be with my Lord and Savior Jesus. You know, it's, not, it's not like a, a Fox's Book of Martyrs kind of ending with David. What does David say? I'm, go, I'm going to dwell where the rest of my fathers dwell. 
Uh, and there's a, well, what does that mean, David? And we, we, there's not a, there's not a sort of robust understanding of the resurrection that you have expressed sometimes off the lips of people that you would expect to find it. And what Levinson has argued for in his reading of the Old Testament is that even though you might not find that doctrine of the resurrection as fruitfully discussed as we may desire, the intimations of it are all over the place. And, and one of those intimations of immortality for, for, um, uh, in other words, that, that our lives are, do not come to an end at the moment of our death or that there's something more beyond the grave is the promise of the temple in the midst of the people of God. The temple and, and the images that are used there. It's, it's the Garden of Eden. It's life in the midst of death. It's God's promise to be among His people. And wherever God is, by the very nature of God's isness, His being, there has to be life. I mean, this is one of the, I, I think, very important um, concepts or theological ideas that we need to have when we think about who God is. And that is that God's very being necessitates existence and life. Um, death is, is not the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's disordered that we go to the cemetery. That's not right. And the fact that we feel the sorrow and the angst over that, and the fact that we try to dismiss that reality from our thinking is very understandable because that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's supposed to be life. And God's very being is the source and the sustenance of all life. And the temple in the midst of God's people is a promise to life even in the midst of, of death. So there's a sense in which the temple is kind of the reversal of uh, the Requiem Mass for the Dead that so many of us have heard in various musical settings, right? Um, in the midst of life, we are in death, right? I mean, that's that's the, the, the I'm thinking of Rudder's Requiem. That that's the kind of line that you hear repeated in one of those in one of those settings. Um, and the temple is the reverse of that. In, in the midst of death, which we know will happen to all of us, I mean, it's an astounding thing, really, when you think about the overwhelming reality that the one thing that all of us in this room share in common, and we're really different people around here, but the one thing that we all share in common is, well, you know what, right? Um, so what, what's the temple? The temple is in the midst of death, we, we see the promise to life. Um, that's why this temple, and I'm using lofty term, but that's terms here, but that's why this temple theology, I think, is so important when coming to terms with who Jesus is and what's he's, what he's doing. Um, I'm off script, but, okay. uh, um, I, I, during my early postgraduate days, I remember sitting around a table. And it was my first time in this kind of academic, this kind of academic setting, and I felt lost. I mean, I remember my first semester at St. Andrews. I was convinced, and this is not hyperbole. I mean, I was convinced they were going to tap me on the shoulder at any moment and say, "We really made a mistake, and you're going to need to go home." Right? I mean, I was just expecting that. Um, just the level of discourse that I was not, you know, just not familiar with. And one of my first seminar settings, we were wrestling with. Um, a particular theologian, some of you may know, his name's T Tom Wright. He's actually coming to Sanford in a little bit. Um, and we were wrestling with Tom Wright's conception of um, the historical Jesus. And Tom Wright makes an argument that if you want to understand the aims and intentions of who Jesus is, 
then what you need to do is you need to kind of uncover the first century world from which Jesus arose and reconstruct the worldview of the first century. And, and on, on first glance, that kind of makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, so what was Jesus? Well, Jesus was a monotheist. He was working with, within the framework of Israel's exile and return, with return not having fully happened yet. And then some other sort of pieces of this worldview that then we take this apparatus of the first century worldview and then take it to the New Testament and we begin to read it. And now that helps us understand what Jesus thought he was doing, his aims and intentions. Um, and I, 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 I mean, I'm not a big fan of this, by the way. But, um, and, and for me, one of the issues that became sort of the light on this was, was when I remember reading Tom Wright's view on the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. He took this sort of first century apparatus, took it to the parable of the prodigal son, and then Wright's conclusion was everybody there would have understood that parable in light of the metaphor of exile and return. Right? And it's like, not about repentance and renewal, it's about exile and return. I remember thinking, I, I don't know. But the point is, we compared and contrasted what Tom Wright was doing with an, another theologian whose name was Hans Frey, taught at Yale in the 70s and the 80s, wrote a very important book entitled The Identity of Jesus Christ. I would say it's one of the most important books I've ever read, frankly. Um, and, and Frey, unbeknownst to any conversation with Tom Wright, but Frey raises the questions, the question, how do we know the aims and intentions of Jesus? It's the same question that Wright was asking, and Wright answers that by this, by the standpoint of a reconstruction of the first century world. Hans Frey says if we want to know the aims and intentions of Jesus, then we follow the biblical narrative very closely. And we watch what Jesus says, and we look very closely at what he does. And that's all, that you want to know what Jesus' self-consciousness was? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their given literary form, in the storied form of those four Gospels, they're going to let you know what Jesus' consciousness was. They're sufficient for that. And so what kind of journey do you go on here? Well, all of a sudden we see Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew doing very Israelite history kind of things. Like Jesus is going down to Egypt. And he's coming out of Egypt as a child. And then he's going out into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. You're like, oh my goodness, these, these narrative stories that I've heard since my childhood aren't just kind of abstract stories about Jesus' life here and there, the showdown with the devil in the desert. But Jesus is embodying something. He's, he's doing something in his own story and narrative where he's actually recapitulating all of Israel's history in his own story. And we're like, oh my, and I remember just going, whoa, this is wild. And then, and then you blink and Matthew, what's he doing? He's on a mountain giving the what? The law. He's the new Moses. And then he's with Peter and James and John and the disciples and he's on a boat and the waves start to go crazy and he, and he looks at the waves and he tells them to stop. And in this overwhelming kind of moment in the narrative, by the way, the narrative never puts these pieces together. This is why Fry says you've got to follow the narrative and think about what the narrative is saying even when it's not saying it. And what's Jesus doing when he tells the winds and the waves to stop and they listen to his voice? They recognize that voice. In other words, if you go back to Genesis 1 and you can't get out of the first two verses of Genesis 1 without seeing this inner Trinitarian dynamic of God's creative activity. The Father speaks the world into existence by the hovering activity of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't get out of the first two verses of the Bible without seeing this Trinitarian dynamic. And we know that the Word is the agent by which the Father creates the world and the effective power of the Spirit. And here Jesus, this man, is on a boat and He speaks to them and the winds and the waves are like, I think I've heard that voice before. That's the voice that brought me into existence. It's like, whoa, right? 
So all of a sudden, you're reading this narrative, and you re- and this is this is part of Fry's logic. You realize Jesus' very storied character demands that we understand his identity as overlapping with the identity of Jehovah, of Tetragrammaton, of Yahweh Himself. And what does that mean? That means that his existence must be. The whole, the, the drum roll of Fry's logic is, we, I mean, now, sort of in retrospect, that we, we can give everybody there in the first century world a pass, but from our perspective, reading the story, the resurrection of the dead is an absolute necessity. How else could it be that Jesus, whose identity overlaps with Adonai, who is life himself, he must be, right? He's gotta be. And his resurrection attests and glory and power to what that is. So you begin to see these these sort of dynamics that are taking place within within the biblical narrative. And we go here to kings, right, in the temple, because the temple is the place where God makes these promises about his presence with them. There's a warning. And here you have it in chapter verse 46 of 1 Kings 8. Um, if they sin against you, that is you, O Lord, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. And hearing this language is kind of interesting, isn't it? Like, well, there's a part of me that hears this. This is the temple's just been built. Um, the carpet in the temple still smells new. I, mean, I don't know how to say it. This is a new, new car smell in the temple. And some of them it's kind of a downer here, Solomon. They'd be downer to bring in this whole notion of captivity into the dedication prayer of the temple. Why, why bring this up? And there's, again, remember, this is prophetic literature. This is not just a simple retelling of Israel's history. These are the former prophets here in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And this is a prophetic word right here coming off the lips of Solomon in the dedicatory prayer because we're not going to get out of 2 Kings before what happens. Israel, the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., no more. And never again. And then what happens with King Nebuchadnezzar coming in in about 587, 86 B.C.? The southern kingdom, Judah, they are um, exiled as well and carried off into a captive land. So there's a kind of foreboding um, word here that's coming from Solomon. And listen to what he says. If you get carried off to a land far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned, and have acted perversely and wickedly. There's a reason, by the way, that certain kind of scholars will argue that kings were shaped and formed while in exile. All right. um, and you can sense it right here, right? I mean, this is, there's a kind of uh, state and intent here where the, where the author is saying something like, and I'm not sure I believe this, but there's an author that's saying, hey, learn from this. Solomon talked about this way back in the dedication of the temple, and you're in that moment now. So here you are in a foreign land. It's not supposed to go that way, but it has. But there's hope. See, this is what's so beautiful about this. In the midst of what you would think would be a cultural cataclysmic moment, there's still a kind of silver lining in the dark cloud. And here it is. If they turn with their heart, if they repent with all their heart, verse 48, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven your dwelling place 
their prayer and their plea and that you maintain their cause and you will forgive your people who have sinned against you and you can kind of follow where the logic is going. There's hope when in a foreign land. Because this threat here, this real life um, possibility of exile, of the broken down relationship between God and his people, begins to make its presence known in Solomon's own narrative. That's the point. I mean, Solomon's praying. That there's, a, there's a kind of narratival irony here. Solomon's praying this. Um, he's, he's expressing these words. And Solomon himself will embody what it is in time that eventually leads to the northern and the southern kingdom being exiled from their, from their land. Uh, and I mentioned this in the first week, but I'll show it to you one more time. First Kings chapter 3, not to look. First Kings 3 verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. And then you have here 1 Kings chapter 11. This is the last chapter of, of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon, he loved many foreign women. Right? And here you have the daughter of Pharaoh and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Sidonians and the Hittite women, all of them. And what do all of these foreign wives bring with them into the land of Israel? They bring their company God along with them. And what does, what does, uh, what does Solomon do? He's like, well, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? I mean, I guess that works for kings as well, no matter how many wives you have. And so he makes these wives and, and that's a little bit too domestic. The truth is, the political realities about the allegiances that these foreign wives meant with the surrounding kingdoms to appease both the wife and the father, right? We're like, okay, we'll, we'll build a little sanctuary for Molech down here in the Valley of Hinnom. Some of you have seen that valley. And uh, we'll do some Asherah stuff out here on the on this green hillside. And we'll kind of look the other way when all the kind of, I mean, wild stuff that goes on with the Shiro worship, we'll let that happen over here. And all of a sudden, Solomon's love of foreign women becomes Solomon's acquiescence to foreign gods as well. And now the train is already off the track. So what happens in 1 Kings 11 right here? Ahijah comes in and he makes a prophetic prediction to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Who's Jeroboam? Jeroboam was Solomon's managerial um, uh, oversight of all all forced labor on the building of the temple was Jeroboam. So he didn't really have any royal claim, but here comes Ahijah the prophet to Jeroboam and he seizes him by the side of the road and he says, listen, Solomon has, has betrayed the first command. The, the book of Deuteronomy is out the back door for Solomon. He's married foreign wives and he's not being solely committed to me. So I'm going to break the kingdom in half and I'm going to give you, listen to this, 11 tribes. I mean, just Judah's going to be all that's left in the south. You get to take 11 tribes with you to the north and what does Ahijah say to him? What you would expect Ahijah to say right out of the language of Deuteronomy, just what David said to Solomon on his deathbed. And listen to me, Jeroboam, if you keep to me, and to me alone. And if you serve me in faithfulness and in, in a zealous attendance to the Shema, I'm paraphrasing here, but to the Shema, it, me and me alone, no other God, if you keep to that, then, again, here's a gentle paraphrase, the sky's the limits. You'll have all the political power you need. You'll, you'll have the, the tribes behind you. You can go and the sky is the limit. And what do we find happening before we even get out, right? So, so uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll do the split here. Rehoboam, he's Solomon's son. Not a very smart cookie. I don't know how to say it. I mean, he's a guy that must have gone to 
um, you know, socialite training with chimpanzees or something. I don't know. Uh, just that's not. Just didn't seem to get it. The, uh, the Jeroboam, as the representative of all the the workers, came to him and said, "You know, that's your your father kind of put the screws um, to these workers here, and maybe you can, uh, you know, alleviate some of those taxes and the burden of their labor. Um, and when you do that, by the way, there's a kind of political catch to this. You'll gain some loyalty. I mean, you read it and you go, of course he's going to say." Well, yeah, that makes really good sense. I need to do that. But he doesn't. And he makes this kind of, I'll let you read it on your own, but he makes a kind of crude comparison between himself and his father. Um, read it sometime. And then he says, I'm going to even be stronger than he was. And he doubles down on the taxation, which then creates a complete split in the kingdom. Um, and now you have Rehoboam in the south, and Jeroboam is anointed king in the north by Ahijah. And there, here you have it. And what happens... Um, well, let's see if we can find my place here. I think it's in 11. Uh, nope. Uh, 13. Oh, yes. The chapter 12, verse 25. Get ready for this. This is wild. So Jeroboam, uh, then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. And he lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, and they will kill. So this is all about political stuff here. 28. So the king took counsel. This is, I mean, you talk about history repeating itself. Stunning. And he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. And listen to this. It's like deja vu. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That is exactly what Aaron said when they built the two calves back in Exodus 32. Oh, they built the calves, and you, I mean, this is one of my favorite Bible stories of all time. Like, when they do replay movie night in heaven, I want to see this one. Um, you know, because here you have, you know, they come, Moses is up there, and who knows, gosh, I mean, Mount Sinai is horrible. It's a, it's a, it's, it seems like a house of horrors, and there's, Moses has been up there forever, so what are we going to do? Well, let's, um, let's build a God. It's just kind of our instinct. Um, and so they give all this gold, and then they build this, these, these two calves, and they worship these calves, but we often forget this part. They worshiped these calves as the God that delivered them from Egypt. There's something subtle going on here. In other words, there's a kind of, the technical term is, there's a kind of syncretism that's going on, a blending of Yahweh worship with pagan worship, um, so that the people had something tangible that they, they could put their hands on, and it really becomes kind of God now made in our image. Right. This is the great sort of... Um, the great thrust, I think, of the first three commandments in the Ten Commandments is the warning against this particular instinct that we're going to want to take God down and make Him palatable so that we can have some kind of control over Him. Moses comes down from the mountain. He hears, again, we're, we're adults in here. The Bible says, most translations say, he hears the sound of battle. It's more like he hears the sound of spring break, right? That's really what it is. Um, <laughs> And he comes down and he sees what's going on. He's furious about it. And do you remember Aaron's response? Aaron's like, well, I don't know. We just tossed this gold in the fire and boop, there they came. They hopped right out. Um, that's, 
Jeroboam, it's, it's remarkable that Jeroboam would move toward this particular kind of syncretistic instinct, but he does so, and he does so in such a way that it now becomes a kind of trope. It becomes a literary device for the rest of the book of Kings, for all the kings that come after Jeroboam to the final king who's destroyed, I think it's Hosea, who's destroyed under um, under uh, the Assyrians in 722. And this is kind of how the trope goes. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the ways of Jeroboam, his father. Even when you get into 2 Kings, um, and this is one of the more complicated, naughty, thorny stories of, of the Old Testament, is, is Jehu. Remember what happens with Jehu? Jehu um, ends up killing um, uh, the last king of the Amri dynasty, Ahab's son. So Jehu comes in and he kills him, and he's kind of encouraged to do so because it's it's completely become so pagan with the prophets of Baal. And what does Jehu do? I mean, he's given he's given prophecies, he's given affirmation by Elisha, go and do this, and he um, kills all the prophets of he, he, he kind of a ruse. He says, "You think uh, Ahab was a big devotee of Baal? I'm going to show you who's a real devotee of Baal. We're going to have the biggest Baal celebration ever. Tell all your neighbors and your friends. Bring all the prophets, and we're going to have a big ceremony to Baal. And you know, and we'll talk about this next week, but you know what the Baal ceremonies were all about, right? I mean, who is Baal? Baal is that god of fertility and the harvest that goes to sleep every winter and then has to be aroused again from his slumber so that the wheat will yield its fruit and the figs will sprout and the grapes will come onto the vine. Um, and how did they wake Baal from his slumber? They cut themselves. They bled into the ground. They had orgiistic rituals that they thought the admixture of humanity and human sensuality with the earth would, would arouse Baal. So by the and we'll again talk about this next week, but, but when Elijah is there on Mount Carmel and starts to poke fun at the prophets of Baal, remember that? He's like, well, maybe he's sleeping. I mean, as a kid, I used to think, well, oh boy, he, oh, Elijah really knows how to get after him, right? I mean, but he's actually building off of their own religious idea. Right? He's not just being a smart aleck there, which I kind of like that reading from my childhood. But he's not just being a smart aleck. He's saying, you guys got to do more. He's still sleeping. There's no rain yet. And that's when they started to cut themselves. So it's all built into this Canaanite mythic ritual. And here you have someone like Jehu who comes on the scene and says, you think Ahab worshiped Baal? I'm going to show you what real Baal worship is like. He brings them all together and it's a ruse. It's a plot. Um, it's a, it's a sort of bloody scene. He brings all these prophets and he kills all the prophets of Baal and all the worshippers of Baal. And what's that? Oh, thank you. That wasn't an intended mic drop. We're still going on. <laughs> and so he, and, and he brings them all together and he has them all slain. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, do we actually have a king in the northern kingdom who might follow in the ways of the Lord? Could it be? We've not had one yet. And there's just deep promise with Jehu. Well, let's read this together. Second Kings 17. Oh, I have it wrong here. Second Kings 10. I have wrong reference. Apologies. 2 Kings 10, 28 through 31. Listen to this. So Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu 
did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So remember, he had made two worshiping centers, Bethel and Dan, and he put golden calves at both spots. And here you have Jehu that seems to be doing this sort of religious revival, renewal moment, but he did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in your heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. And he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Uh, it's kind of remarkable, isn't it, here, that you have, even with someone like Jehu, the danger of syncretism that's built into the very heart of Israel's worshiping practices. I was reading, sort of preparing for this morning, so I was reading a particular commentary, the one that I mentioned to you last week, and uh, Lightheart in his commentary on Kings compares and contrasts what's going on with Jeroboam and the instinct towards syncretism and idolatry to what happened at the Reformation. Um, and we, you know, admittedly around the Advent get a little Reformation happy. I mean, I get that. Um, and I'm, you know, sign me up. I mean, I'm just, I'm in that camp. Um, and I think um, left in the abstract or as a kind of academic exercise, the Reformation can become very quickly understood as a kind of fine-tuned, um, overly analytical theological discussion about what it means to be justified by faith alone. In other words, we can get really academic on these matters. And by the way, you know, you've, some of you have read enough of these theologians from that period and the period after them in the 1700s to realize it could get really fine and dicey. When you talk about the scholastic mind knew how to make distinctions on top of distinctions on top of distinctions. And you're like, oh my goodness, is it really that complicated? Right? So, I mean, I, I, I get it. In the abstract, these things can become seemingly removed from our lives and, or at least from the way in which it touched the ground for us. And we can tend to view the Reformation in a kind of an overly academic way. What well, we forget is that so much of the Reformation and the solas that come out of it, sola fide, faith alone, sola scriptura, the scripture alone, as the authoritative word, um, solo gratia, grace alone, solo Christe, by Christ alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, that all these solas that can, again, seemingly feel like abstract theological categories were very, very practical. And I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, Marxian practicality. I mean very much driven by pastoral concerns. Namely, the creeping instinct that all of us have to be religious idolaters. To think that there's a way in which we can enter into some sort of contractual relationship with God so that God's relationship to us and our relationship to Him become hostage to some sort of cyclical pattern of what we're doing in our religious outs in our religious practices and our duties. And things can get can get idolatrous before you even blink. And that's I mean the and that's why by the way when you read Luther, you read Calvin, it almost and I was doing that even this week. I mean it's almost like they talk about idolatry in every page. Like what is the fascination with idolatry? It's because they're pastors. And they know that the the dangers that are present for all of us to move towards some kind of syncretism. 
Some kind of blending of the doctrine of God's gospel revealed in Jesus Christ by the effective power of the Spirit into some sort of religious ritualized practice that becomes dependent on something that I'm doing and achieving. And we can do it without even knowing that it's happening. And I think the history of Israel here that we have in Kings is such an incredible reminder of that realia um, in the life of all religious peoples. And if you think, you know, it's easy to kind of go, well, that, you know, that's Israel back then. They didn't have Jesus and they didn't have the Gospels. The whole point about having these, these history uh, books in the Old Testament is a, is a continual reminder of our own story. We kind of find ourselves in the narrative. That's why I think these stories, when they're at their best, is when all of a sudden you kind of get into the plot and the dynamics, and you realize before you know it, I kind of feel like I'm in this. Like I'm, I'm, I've been, I've been drawn into this very story, and you're meant to be drawn into these stories, because all of us have a tendency, I think, to want to have at least some golden calf somewhere, right? I mean, what's the golden calf? It's a little, it's a little hedge bedding. I mean, what's 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 the big deal with a little Asherah worship, right? It's it's hedging bets, is what it is. It's, an, it's, a, it's a tendency not to believe in the sola character of God's work in our lives. And I think this history here is a, is a big part of that. And I don't know, what's the time? Um, I'll, I'll end with this, and then we'll take Q&A. The other thing that I think emerges from the pattern here that we have um, in Kings, and I, and I want to flesh more of this out, so I'm just going to... This, this is uh, germinating for me. All right. But what do you have within the prophetic book of Kings that's given to the people of God to ground them in their covenantal relationship with God. Two primary things. Number one, they're given the temple. And number two, all of these books are understood as underneath the guise or the oversight of the prophetic word of the Lord. Um, I, I brought statistics for you today. This would drive me nuts if I were sitting in your seat, but here you go. Um, 33 times in the book of Kings, you have someone say, thus says the Lord. 33 times. That's, by the way, a prophetic formula. Thus saith the Lord. That's 33 times. 48 times in the book of Kings, you have the phrase, the word of the Lord came to, which is, again, another turn of phrase that's prophetic. What you learn in the book of Kings is that God is giving himself to his people in communicative address. He's not leaving them rudderless, but He is giving His presence to His people. Remember that theology of presence? God is giving His presence to His people as an act of grace in two profoundly material ways. One of them, the temple, and the other one, the word of the prophet, the word of the Lord. And I thought, isn't that fascinating to see that dynamic throughout? Um, and as an aside, what's the threat? The threat, if they don't continue in God's ways, are what? The removal of the temple and the withholding of the word. Remember what Amos the prophet said? Bring a famine of bread and water, that's fine, but not a famine of your word. Not that. Don't take the temple away. That's God's promised presence in our midst. So these are gifts of God's grace. If, and, and, and this is why this is germinating for me. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it on you this morning because I, I think it's in the right direction. These are what we might consider the history of Israel's means of grace. Um, they're the places, the material places where God attaches promises to his people. I will meet you at the mercy seat in the temple. I, I, God, I will meet you there. You come in contrition. 
You come before me and sacrifice, I will meet you there. And the promise that God gives to His Word, that He's in the midst of His people by His own presence, these are, these are the means of grace in the Old Testament, which are very much related to the means of grace for us in the church as well, right? Sacrament and the preaching of the Word. I'm, I'm, I still have enough Presbyterian in me, all right, um, to think very highly of the way in which the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the means of grace. And by the way, you'll find it in the 39 articles as well in the back of our prayer book. And what's the language that's used there? The language that's used there is that God can work in... I mean, it's, it's a very sort of medieval understanding here. God can do whatever God wants to do. I mean, God can work in miraculously powerful ways that transcend any of our expectations. Just meet a Muslim convert who came to Christ in some 1040 window country. Right? I mean, I think I heard a missionary say one time at Beeson that he met one Muslim convert in that 1040 window that didn't have some direct encounter with the risen Jesus in a dream. I mean, this is, this, I'm sorry, don't, don't, I'm not being here a kind of cessationist that this, you know, this, God can do whatever God wants to do in His powerful ways. And, 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 and we can praise Him and thank Him for it. But at the same time, God says that he, the confession says that he gives himself, he promises to give himself to people primarily in rather ordinary ways. The ordinary means of grace. It's why coming to church is so important. It's why hearing the preached word again and again is so important. It's why our liturgical life together is so important. Because what are we doing in our liturgical life together? We're getting reinforced in the truth of the gospel and hearing the promise of God's word given to us again and again. I mean, I had a colleague who's um, retired now at Beeson, but I can remember him saying with some regularity, when people tell me they don't like liturgy, I always ask them, what part? Is it the Bible part or the praying part? Which part don't you like? Right, you know? um, and I, I love that. I, mean, I think that it, it, we can debate about the, the, the nature of the fixity of the language. I mean, we can have a discussion about that. But the point is, here you have something that's fixed together that draws us into something that's bigger than ourselves. That's what's so crucial. And God gives Himself to us in the preaching of the Word and in the celebration of the sacrament where we participate in Christ's own body and blood. The promises that He attaches to His own Gospel and He confirms what we're doing there at the table by the effective power of His Word. So again, I'm thinking somewhat out loud here, but I I think it's fascinating that in Kings, you have God giving Himself to His people in the temple, sacramentally, and He's giving Himself to His people in His Word. and And He's saying that's the location where I meet you, and I attach promises to those places. And we have legitimate um, typological or mimetic or corresponding relations between the temple and the Word and kings and the sacrament and the preaching of the Word in the New Testament. There's a reason, I think, there's a reason why we find Jesus, resurrected Jesus, who I guess could have done some big-time fireworks to prove his resurrection, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know this is an argument by silence, but I mean, wouldn't that have been cool? Like, you remember you said you wanted me to call Elijah down? Well, let me do it now. All right, now, now it wasn't the right time on the cross, but let me let me just split the heavens open and show you how. And he doesn't do that. What does he do? He sits around a table and he teaches them the word, and then he breaks the bread, and they see him, and he's gone. But they see him. Do you see that Luke's not Luke's telling us something here? You want to see Jesus? You want your eyes to be opened? You want to meet Him in the places where He promises to meet you so that you can have what you really need, the bread of life? 
the King of Heaven, then come and sit around His Word and celebrate His Holy Feast. And He'll meet you there. So Lord, I pray that You'll draw our hearts together to believe that you, You've not left us without material things. These are things that we touch. We've got a Bible in our hands. Um, we put bread in our mouths and we taste the tannins of the wine. And in all those moments, you're, you're telling us, Lord, that you love your world and you love us. You're making all things new and you've not left us to ourselves and that you've, you've brought all things into your Son and that we are, find our life and our joy and our hope in Him. We, we need the temple, Lord. And we know that we're in the temple in Christ. And we need your word. Don't leave us rudderless, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.